This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener, when you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or donate on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I review the science of Spider-Man 2. But first up, here's the news. Social media censored. The Australian federal government has paid huge sums of money to private intelligence agencies to spy on Australian citizens' social network posts. They're using software designed by CSIRO to help them sift through the huge amount of data to find political dissent. This practice came to light when a Sydney academic was threatened over Twitter by someone writing through the official Australian Department of Immigration Twitter account. The faceless bureaucrat demanded that the woman take down a photo she'd posted of a bus outside an immigration prison during a protest. The protest was against the government's punishment of asylum seekers who were suing the government for illegally exposing their private information on the web. The government was transporting them to the other side of the continent away from their friends and lawyers, to a new prison that doesn't have any phone or internet access. The anonymous government official complained publicly on Twitter that this woman's privately posted Facebook photo had a comment added by someone else that the department found offensive. She was threatened that the immigration department would consider their options if she didn't immediately take down the post with all of its comments, which is code for legal action. Ironically, the only kind of free speech protected under Australian law is the right to political speech even when it's criticism or dissent. This is from a Liberal Party government that is trumpeting itself as such a big defender of the right to free speech that it took $300,000 away from the Human Rights Commission in order to pay a new free speech commissioner appointed by the Liberals. The government is also trying to push a change to the Discrimination Act to allow racial vilification in the name of giving people the right to be bigots. As if the right to be bigoted is equal to free speech. Ironically, the dictionary definition of the word liberal places it in opposition to bigotry. Earlier, the Australian federal government sacked an employee who criticised them on an anonymous social network post. She took them to court and lost. The court decided that her constitutional right to political free speech was trumped by her employment contract, because the contract was a voluntary agreement between two private parties. This is despite the fact that the federal government is not a private party and the constitution is intended as a limit on the federal government's powers. 
In response, the government sent a notice to all employees to dob in their mates if they catch them posting dissent online. The good news is now that all these authoritarian people are reading our private posts on social networks, we have a captive audience that's forced to read whatever we say. The federal government war on science continues. The CSIRO is facing even more cuts in the upcoming federal budget next month. The government has appointed businessmen to the Commission of Audit to determine how many cuts and where they should be made to Australia's peak scientific body. You know, experts from a completely irrelevant field. The Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organisation, unlike universities, offers scientists the opportunity to work on projects without worrying about grants every six months. The CSIRO is preparing to be literally decimated, to lose a further 1 in 10 staff. They expect to lose $150 million, about 20% of its annual funding, in the next budget. The CSIRO currently receives 60% of its funding from the federal government. In 2013, the CSIRO axed 400 jobs. The agency announced that a further 300 jobs would be destroyed in the next financial year. The Commission of Audit has instructed the CSIRO to identify areas of research that the organisation could get out of. There is very little private investment in science in Australia. Without CSIRO filling the gap, scientists will be forced to find work overseas. For a list of CSIRO's achievements, including the invention of Wi-Fi that earned the government half a billion dollars, go to CSIRO-pedia, P-E-D-I-A, C-S-I-R-O dot A-U. Coal Astroturfing. The Minerals Council of Australia, a mining company lobby group, launched a public relations disaster last week called Australians for Coal. The hashtag is trending on Twitter. Not because the campaign was successful, but because people had fun making fun of it. The PR attempt comes in the wake of a coal seam mine fire that polluted the air very badly at Hazelwood in the Latrobe Valley of Victoria for over a month. Many residents of Morwell were forced to leave their homes. It's also at a time when money from mining companies, particularly those mining coal, is blatantly influencing Australian government policy, from the Liberal Party's dedication to removing the carbon price and the mining resources tax, to allowing millions of tonnes of sludge to be dredged and dumped on the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park to build a coal port. The Mining Council, paid for by mining companies such as BHP Billiton and Rio Tinto, has called for jail time for coal protesters. A 2012 study estimated that the coal mining industry receives about $4 billion every year in subsidies and concessions from the Australian Federal Government. That's enough to save Social Security and the CSIRO and put solar panels on every roof in Australia and the budget into surplus. Here's some of the things that people have been tweeting. I support Australians for coal because the Liberal Party needs to get electoral bribes from somewhere. Because I love to watch Gina bitch slap my kids, Australians for coal. I'm with Australians for coal because an unsustainable economy and devastated landscape is a very effective deterrent to illegal boat people. I've always wanted beachfront property even though I live inland, Australians for coal. Because climate change will be exciting, a real life disaster movie, Australians for coal. Fish are a lot easier to catch when they're floating on top of the ocean. Because polar ice caps are for losers. Because burning dinosaurs is great fun. Love the smell of coal dust in the morning? 
asthma, IQ loss, nerve damage. Can our kiddies ask for more? Australians for coal. I support Australians for coal because our mining billionaires are only in it to help poor people in developing countries. Be slave labour. Australians for coal because we need to kill the planet to save the economy. Because a month-long fire just isn't long enough to turn Morwell into Mordor. Because coal doesn't make us sick, it just makes us more well. Australians for coal. And finally, my favourite, lungs are the new black. Search twitter.com for hash Australians for coal. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. This week, I went to the special preview screening of Spider-Man 2, organised with great concern about security by Sony. I was a friend's free ticket plus one. Sony started the security theatre by warning us that as a condition of entry, we'd have to surrender our mobile phones for the time we're in the cinema. Then they warned that if a recording device was found in our bags or in our person, this device would be confiscated. Then they warned that they would be using infrared night vision to watch us watching the movie. How creepy is that? Sony fails the logic test. If they're watching us with night vision, why do they need to care about whether we have a switched off recording device stored in our bags? They could see if we tried to record the movie, so they didn't need to take anything. They collected our phones into plastic bags with number tags and gave us numbered receipts. Then they made us wait for two hours while they fumbled downloading the movie to Australia and getting the copy protection digital rights management keys. This was a failure for Australia's internet infrastructure, the lack of a national broadband network, as much as a failure for software copyright protection, DRM. They filled our two hours of waiting by showing us a three-minute music clip and offering free popcorn and soft drinks if we queued up. A Sony representative spoke to us by microphone and explained that they'd missed the security download window and they'd have to start downloading again. They didn't show us ads for upcoming films, they just let us chat. Too bad for the people who came alone. Some people had to ask for their phones so they could phone their family to warn them they'd be very late. Finally, they downloaded the film, 
but then they informed us that they'd been on the phone for half an hour with Los Angeles, where it was 6am, trying to talk people over there into giving them the KDM, which I assume stands for Key Digital Management. This is what they needed to decrypt the movie and let them play it to the audiences in the two cinemas. I don't know if they needed a security key for each cinema. Finally, they started the movie. And by a suspicious coincidence, the opening scene is about someone on a private jet trying to upload an important file to a remote server from his laptop, while being constantly interrupted and having the Ethernet cable pulled out. I guess he wasn't allowed to use Wi-Fi on his private jet. The original Spider-Man got his power to do whatever a spider can from the bite of a radioactive spider. And so it was in the 1970s movie. The 21st century reboot with Tobey Maguire had him bitten by a genetically engineered spider. This reboot of the reboot has him bitten by a radioactive genetically engineered spider-human hybrid just to cover all the bases. This movie cites science all the way through. It relies on science exposition for its plot, and its major characters are scientists and engineers. However, nobody in the film is the slightest bit logical or able to follow logic, and the science they cite is always made up. Now, not the made-up science-sounding words like you get in Star Trek, but made-up basic science. They could just as easily have paid an undergraduate science student 50 bucks to get better scientific justification for the story they wanted to write. Instead of going to the trouble of making physics up and then telling us about it as they went along. The old films violated physics, but didn't insist on telling us about it at every turn. Criminals recklessly drive a truck full of plutonium-238, radioactive and explosive which appears as yellow liquid glowing in tubes. Plutonium-238 is radioactive, but it's not explosive. It's the safest of the plutonium isotopes because it only gives off alpha radiation, not X-rays or gamma rays. Alpha radiation is made of alpha particles, which consist of two protons and two neutrons bound together somewhat like a helium nucleus. Alpha radiation can't even penetrate skin. It just heats things up. NASA use it in radioactive thermal generators in robot spacecraft. Radioactive thermal generators make electricity from the heat radiated by plutonium-238 using a thermoelectric circuit to convert heat directly into current. So the radioactivity of the stolen plutonium-238 doesn't make it dangerous to handle. It is not explosive. Spider-Man handles it as if it's radioactive nitroglycerin. As if a tiny tube of plutonium-238 were to roll out of the van and hit something, it would go boom. It wouldn't. It would, however, be very poisonous. That's a much better reason to go after it. We see Spider-Man as so amazingly super fast that everything else seems like it's standing still, including falling trucks and billboards. Spiders are not super fast, but I can let that go. It's a comic book adaptation, and it's cool to see the world slow down from the superhero's perspective. There never appear to be consequences from his superfast motion, but that's okay because they don't talk about it. The first villain is a one-dimensional victim of bullying. He's a genius electrical engineer who's treated worse than a janitor, and who's shown to be a crazy stalker guy. 
Corporate executives from a $200 billion company steal his power grid design instead of paying him for it, and then tease him every day. So, he's a villain. Blame the victim. He gets bitten by electric eels in a superpower origin event that was heavily foreshadowed. With his electric eels superpowers, he's not after revenge on the bullying executive, or even on the corporation that stole his work. No, 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 he wants revenge on Spider-Man and to make the city go dark. As you do. He's a really dumb genius. Not just socially dumb, as you might believe of some geniuses, but generally dim. A badly written crazy villain who looks like a Dr. Manhattan ripoff from Watchmen. The power grid, we're told, is the first electromagnetic power grid in the world. I laughed. All power grids are electromagnetic. There's no other way. Spider-Man decides he has to break up with his girlfriend because his relationship makes her a target for his enemies. This is an old superhero problem, going back to the earliest comics and one of the main reasons for superheroes to have secret identities. As in real life for public figures, villains don't care what your Facebook status or official relationship is. They care that you care about someone. The fact that he cares about her is enough knowledge for a villain to grab her. To get to him. By breaking up with her, he endangers her more instead of protecting her. Hasn't he read any comics? Spider-Man's love interest is a strong, intelligent, educated woman who's smarter and wiser than him. Yet she doesn't serve any other role in the story other than as his support. She's just a pretty prop. Harry the billionaire wants Spider-Man's blood because it may hold the key to saving his life from a terrible illness. We're told that spiders have amazing self-healing powers, because unlike human cells, spider cells can quickly heal from injuries and illnesses. Super-healing spiders. It's not true, and it's not necessary. Spider toxins do all sorts of amazing things in real life. I interviewed toxicologist Graham Patterson, who makes medicines from spider toxins. Spider silk also looks to have healing properties that medical researchers could use. Spider-Man refuses to let Harry have a blood sample for study because he imagines Harry will inject it and die if the blood types are incompatible. Just give Harry the blood sample for his technicians to study and nobody will get hurt. But nobody actually checks anybody's blood type. Harry is dying and demands to know how getting the wrong blood type can make him deader. Spider-Man could have explained that it would kill him in minutes through coagulation if it's the wrong blood type, and offered to check, but he doesn't. Because the whole film might have ended there, and then Harry wouldn't have become a villain. Harry's the only villain who has a vaguely understandable motive in the film. The plot's loosely based on the original comic, and Stan Lee is an executive producer. And he appears in a cameo. You can look out for him. The main plot points will be very familiar to anyone who saw the old films or read the comic. But there's just no excuse for the writing this time being so bad. The previous movies were also dubious in terms of what was physically possible, but I could forgive them because they didn't constantly cite the fake science they were based on. At least the CGI special effects are well done, and following Spidey swinging through the city in 3D is fun. Spider-Man is worried about being zapped by kilovolts of electric current from Electro. So his love interest reminds him of his school science lesson. If you magnetise a nail, it can hold an electric charge. No, it can't. Don't try this at home, kids. Magnetising a nail doesn't turn it into a capacitor. 
Insulating two strips of metal could make a capacitor like a Leyden jar, allowing it to store a small amount of charge. Magnetizing a nail or a web shooter isn't going to help at all. If Spider-Man could convert the incoming electric current into a magnetic field in an inductor, he could store it, but he'd still get zapped. Only insulation would have really saved Spider-Man from being zapped with huge arcs of electric current, if only Hollywood had hired a writer who understood the basics of electricity. Hollywood, please pay a science consultant to come up with scientific plot devices that would still let you achieve your story ends without having to make up rubbish science. I'm available. Spider-Man 2 will be released around the world on Thursday, 17th of April, 2014. Money. Science or alchemy? Geoffrey Bauche is an economist and assistant secretary at the Association for Good Government. I spoke to him at the RSL and asked him, what is money? Your textbooks will tell you that money is an instrument in which you can measure value. It's a medium of exchange, which means it facilitates the exchange of goods and services. It's also a standard of accounting, uh, a measure of value, and a store of value. That's why you save it in banks. And it can also be a commodity in itself. But how is money made? Because we talk about money being made by banks or made by governments or we go out and make money, but is it is it made from nothing or is it made from something? You'll have to look at money First, I'll give you a very bold and it can be a controversial economic statement. All money is fiat. And fiat comes from the term, the Latin term, let it be or make it so. And money is actually what you make it so. Like, you actually have the power to create your own money when you write a check. That is your legal tender, even if it is honored by the person you transact with, can get you goods and services that you want. Your credit card is itself money because when you present it, people will honor it for the amount of goods and services it can buy on credit. So what is money? How do you create money? This is very controversial. Money is, all money is fiat. All money is money because it is made so. So does that mean it, it's made so by an authority or because we all agree that we will accept it as having value? Oh, definitely it does not depend on authority. It, it comes from the fact that all people accept it as value in itself and when people lose confidence in that money then it's like it's still fiat because let it be so that it is worthless so you that's why you it's possible to have worthless money because people declare it as worthless so what about people who've invented currencies like the barter currencies or just Hut River Province dollars. Okay, let's look at it in the following historical trends. There's money minted by governments, by the sovereigns, 
right? It's, we can go back to time. And if you're a farmer and you're carrying all this grain and you need things for the next harvest or things for the home, you don't go around saying, I'll give a bushel of grain for a hammer. No. You would go into the city and exchange all your grain for coin that bears the mark of the sovereign, which gives you the, the power to purchase with the amount of coins the corresponding goods and services that you need. It can even be a haircut. It can be uh, a dress for your wife and children. Uh, it can be food like meat or seeds for your next crop cycle. So that's basically the function that it serves, that the sovereign can make it. But also there have been civilizations that have had no sovereign minting money. I'm talking about the Inca Empire that accepted coconuts as the currency. But then again, you can use coconuts as confectionery and food. And also in South Pacific, pre-colonial South Pacific islands, they've used puka shells and other types of shells as currencies to facilitate exchange of goods and services. So in that case, who was the, monet, who was the printing authority? It was nature. And there have also been private uh, producers of currency. And I'm talking about the time when Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank, Standard Chartered Bank were producing their own currencies and notes, which the economy at the time accepted as currency. That was part one of a series of talks with the economist Joffrey Bauche about money. Is it science or alchemy? And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and please review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. And a big thank you to Al from Hilo for donating to Diffusion this week. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. 
Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, buddy. He's got a radioactive bug. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, there goes the Spider-Man. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Well, then fame he's ignored. Action is his reward. Look out! Here comes the Spider-Man. Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Well, fame he's ignored. Action is his reward. Look out! Here comes the Spider-Man in the chill of night, at the scene of a crime. Like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. Spider. Comes the spider man.